0: Hi, I'm Rex New, the showrunner of the Hacker Chronicles, and I'd like to welcome you to a very special bonus episode of the show. We're going to be releasing the next chapter of Alice's tenuous journey to escape her cyber captor, John Doe, on Tuesday, September 5th. But today, we're taking a look behind the scenes at what some of the hacking in Season 2 looks like in the real world, specifically the attack on the HCV Orca that kicks off Season 2. We're joined today by Nathan Winslow the Chief Cybersecurity Strategist at Tenham. Nathan has over two decades of experience in cybersecurity, and we couldn't think of a better person to talk to about how the attack on the Orca mirrors similar attacks in real life. If you need a refresher, you can pause this now and check out Episode 1. We'll be here when you're ready. Now there's no going back. Lots of spoilers ahead. So if you're still with us, here we go. You're going to hear Nathan compare Alice's hack to real-life examples of industrial and corporate espionage that he's encountered. Plus, he's going to have some expert advice for your own vulnerabilities. After all, you're the most vulnerable where you're the most comfortable. We hope you learned something new today. And also, thanks for all the listens and support. It really means the world to us.
1: So, Nathan, thank you for joining us. Thanks very much, folks. Happy to be here and happy to uh, be part of the whole thing. It's great.
0: You know, Nathan, I'd love if we could just talk about your title for a moment. So, if you could explain what exactly does it mean to be a chief security strategist? After all, Tenable is a cybersecurity
1: company. Seems
0: like your, your title is pretty big, it could mean a lot of different things.
1: It can, and, and it often does. So, to give you a little context about it before I, I give you the direct Sort of definition of it. Myself, I come from a security background. I've been in the industry about 25 years, worked in government early on as an analyst, and was building security programs at a time where. As I like to joke with people, like security didn't really exist. We were just the IT people in the corner of the room who liked to tell people no a lot. And a whole industry kind of blossomed out of that. So I come from a proper security background. I've been a, a an analyst. I've been a chief security officer. I've run security programs for companies later in my career. I've been executive-level consultant for security programs, helping companies figure out how to make it better. So I've had a really great opportunity in my career to work at all the levels of a security program, from being in the trenches all the way up to leadership. I have kind of a unique perspective on the whole thing because I've seen sort of all sides. Coming to Tenable as chief security strategist, what they have me do here is leverage all of that expertise in part being evangelist for security practices. I spent a lot of my time doing education and talking to people at conferences and trying to help people understand better practices, new techniques, new ways that we can defend our, our networks better. As we all know, who, you know, we've been in this industry for more than a few minutes. It changes so fast. The attackers get more sophisticated. The types of attacks change, whether that's technical or as I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about today about social engineering attacks. The whole process morphs constantly. Being able to be out in front of that, help organizations, help individuals, professionals at all levels, try to understand what's going on, build better strategies and programs to defend their their schools, their home networks, their companies. That's really what the role is kind of all about. It is a lot of moving parts. And thankfully, Tenable is a big supporter of doing those kinds of things in, in the community and really trying to help support everyone to do this a bit better. No, Nathan,
0: it's really obvious based on your career why well, you're the perfect person for me to talk to you today and for our listeners uh, to hear from. And so one of the coolest things about how we've approached this show is that we try to make the various hacks on the show as realistic as possible. And, and I think try is probably not strong enough a word. The reality is like we spend a lot of time researching things, planning this out, making sure that What Alice is doing is as close as possible to how it would happen in real life, if not completely how it would happen in real life. And that brings me to the hack of the HCV Orca, which opens season two. Now, in this hack, Alice sneaks onto a 400-meter container ship with the help of an insider named Carl. Now, Nathan, could you tell us uh, how what we
1: portrayed in our season opener holds up in terms of realism? Very realistic, especially if we're talking about that kind of specific sort of shipping or transportation kind of industry problem. I think a good representation of the kind of sort of hybrid combined attack that if if somebody is really targeting a specific organization, it reflects a little bit of the technical sort of cyber attack that goes on, the hacking, if you will, but also really highlights the social engineering part of it, the, the personal sort of human part of the attack, which is, doing a lot of research about the company, understanding the layout of of the ship, understanding the types of systems that you're trying to, to get into, being able to get physical access, all of these kinds of um, more human, more physical types of things that go on that can very much be part of an industrial sabotage or industrial espionage kind of situation. I think the key about this is it's easy to get sort of caught in this idea that this is only going to happen to big, massive companies or things that have very physical representations, like a cargo ship. And the truth of the matter is, almost every industry is vulnerable to this kind of problem. You have to think about this from the standpoint of, why would a criminal actor take some sort of action against you? Usually it's financial, could be politically motivated. There's other reasons why criminal actors do what they do. But in almost every case, it's that you have something valuable, and that becomes the target so you can talk about obvious cases of say power or water facilities that if they were attacked could cause harm to constituents taking out power or water systems but banks obvious targets lots of money there lots of money to be stolen any industry we could identify targets that would have value to a criminal actor and so industrial espionage as a concept has to be taken seriously Regardless of your industry, regardless of your size, regardless of where you are, what you do, it's something that can be really devastating and it's very real. It's getting sophisticated. These aren't just empty phishing emails that come out and try to get you. It's a very methodical combined set of attacks that the motivated attacker is going to find a way in. They're going to find a way to launch the attacks that they want to do and they will gain access to that target. So it's really, really important that, you know, if you're outside the transportation business and you're listening to episode one, don't think this is a unique thing to cargo ships. This is a common thing really everywhere. And it is a really good example of how these attacks are starting to happen more frequently these days.
0: What I'm hearing you say, Nathan, is that vulnerabilities are not just something that might be in your computer or on your phone, like a piece of code or something like that. These vulnerabilities can come from something as simple as, like you said, money, potentially even just a grudge. And I imagine that makes figuring out what's valuable in your business a little complicated because
1: none of us are mind readers. You're bringing up a really good point. And and yes, you're hearing correctly. We've seen over the years from any type of criminal actor, whether that's nation state actor or financially motivated criminal actor, whatever the case is, generally speaking, they're looking to follow the path of least resistance. But as we've evolved Information security as a discipline, we've gotten better with our tools. It's becoming harder to break in purely from a, a technical assault, in relative terms, because it's still pretty easy, uh, and it's often easy because we don't follow our good processes and our good techniques, and we forget to patch, or we choose not to for whatever reasons. There's a lot of challenges there. So, because of that unwillingness to really comply hard with our best practices. We leave technical doors open all the time. Those become the path of least resistance. That's why we see things like ransomware and phishing attacks being so common because they work. But as we get better about locking down the technology, as we do better with our processes, as we mature... Our security programs to a point where we're really dialing in that part of it, the path of least resistance starts becoming people. And that's where social engineering is so important. It's why this research that we're seeing Alice do is such a really critical part of the process if you're an attacker, because oftentimes it's just easier, frankly, to hack the human and get what you need from that. And we've seen this, of course, for many, many years as well. Passwords stealing efforts and sort of anecdotal stories of people who come into office buildings and talk their way in because they say they're the IT technician or whatnot. Uh, these are true stories. It is a real target. And, and going back to your point, it's why it's so difficult for organizations to sort of wrap their arms around the cybersecurity problem in general, because often they focus on the technology piece, because that's a tangible thing you can target. I can buy tools. I can hire people. I can build a process and do something about it. When you start to factor in the complexity of humans and all your employees, and do I have an insider threat? Do I have someone with a grudge? Do I have someone who can be bribed? Do we have an accidental loss of data? Somebody who just made a mistake but had good intentions? These things happen. And trying to secure that, having to build a plan around how do you protect the humans, sometimes from themselves is a really really complicated problem and as you know we see here in, in the hacker chronicles here season 2 it's effective it's really really effective so we're we're at an interesting point in the industry where again the technology has gotten good processes are getting better but now we're starting to realize just how important it is to address the people side of this problem and that's going to be the hardest one these
0: threats that you're talking about intentional and unintentional threats Alice and John Doe used an intentional threat to get access to the HCV Orca, and that is Carl, who works for the company, the Marquez Maritime Corporation, that owns the Orca. Are there best practices for trying to identify an intentional threat to your company?
1: It is a little complicated because we're dealing with human factors here, but I think one of the better techniques that we have to look at when we're trying to to deal with this kind of insider threat problem is doing our best to eliminate the noise and what i mean by that is if someone is intentionally trying to exfiltrate data or sabotage your company or gather up intellectual property that they're going to sell off if they're an insider they probably have some amount of access they probably aren't going to necessarily trigger a lot of the security problems that an outside attacker would have to trigger right they're already in so what I find for a lot of security organizations, is they get so caught up in all the alerts and all of the events that their tools generate. And they're looking at outside attempts trying to come in and they're looking at anomalies and all of this bad stuff going on in their network. And that's a lot of noise. And And it, you do have to look at those things. But it means we're missing the behavioral changes or means we're missing somebody accessing data that they don't normally access. It means that we're seeing people log in at odd hours or logging in from a place that they shouldn't be logging in from. There's kind of a shift that has to happen in our approaches for a lot of these things, right? If we can minimize the noise a bit of all these events and things triggering everywhere, it gives us a little more clarity, a little more focus on the anomalies that we do want to care about for these sorts of attacks. How do you reduce the noise? This is the change that's happening in the industry, quite frankly, is that we're moving away from that 25-year-old model of buy a lot of firewalls, and just hope that they all bang up against them and can't break in. Now we're looking at things in a much more proactive kind of way. We look at, at understanding the entirety of our environment, of the technical landscape, that's data, that's networks, that's systems, identities, credentials, the cargo ship systems, all of these things. Understand what you have. Understand the state of those devices. Know, are they misconfigured? Are they patched? Are they exposed to access that they shouldn't have? If I understand these things, then I can start to make better decisions about how to protect them. But that's the key. If you can get ahead of it and make better decisions about how you're going to to reduce the noise, then it becomes a lot easier to notice when typical behavior isn't quite right. I imagine the shift
0: to remote work at a lot of organizations has probably made things like what you're talking about a little bit more difficult. That's a really unique challenge to have to deal with when you're talking about filtering
1: out the noise. There was a lot of markets around user behavioral analytics and ways of trying to identify this stuff in in sort of a programmatic way. COVID-19 really threw all of that into chaos because everything that was normal, every baseline, went out the window. I think we're just now really starting to get back into a point of normal, understanding what is or isn't the correct baseline but it's going to be a challenge going forward because those questions where you could once assume as an example anything that is accessing this data outside of my office building must be bad you can't make those assumptions anymore and you don't know where your employees necessarily are where they're working from did they pick up and go on vacation to another country and they're just working from there maybe this gets a, it just makes everything much harder to figure this out. As if we didn't have enough complexity before, this just makes it that much harder. So yeah, that's where we're at. That's the reality of it.
0: One of the running themes throughout not just season two, but also season one of the Hacker Chronicles is how much human error plays into what Alice is able to do. And as we began writing the show even in season one actually caught me by surprise i didn't quite realize how much someone not patching something for example would play into alice's ability to get access to whatever her target is and we certainly see her do it
1: a lot in season two as well not patching your system we could argue that that's not really an intentional decision right most companies want to patch everyone's got good intentions to do it. It just, eh, I didn't get around to it this month, or there's always some kind of reason, right? But there's times I've seen organizations who have made the choice to say, well, listen, we don't want to invest the money in a proper security program. We're only going to put endpoint security on our core critical servers. But all those workstations have access to the data on those core critical servers. So these pathways of again, how everything is so interconnected become really important to this conversation because it's not just the obvious target you have to worry about. It's everything that's connected to it. And this is evident, honestly, in season one, we talked about this a little bit, about the sort of the morphing nature of how the thing moved. That's a very common thing that happens in the industry. It is not uncommon to see the end users of an organization who is being attacked inadvertently forward the attack on and actually propagate the attack further. It does happen. So it's a hard problem. Even when companies are making decisions, they sometimes expose themselves to these kinds of problems. And even when they have the best of intentions, it can get tricky.
0: So the hack in episode one of season two on the HCV Orca is actually inspired by a case study that we read positing how something like what Alice and John Doe and Carl do could actually happen in real life. We've talked about the Sony hack and I'm also curious, what other kind of examples, specifically in terms of corporate espionage or industrial espionage, essentially what Alice does in episode one, what examples have you seen of things like that in real life? Does anything stand out to you?
1: I always think to one that I came across in my own career of a university that didn't have what I would consider the best protocols for defending critical data specifically and some of that comes from the people who work in academia, right? It's very much a, a culture of open information and sharing and exchanging of data. We want to educate everyone. And it's noble, but if you have criminal actors or, or bad actors who want to take advantage of that, it's really inviting to a lot of them. And in this particular case, what they were seeing happening this university was that there were groups from a, a nation state that were infiltrating their network and taking research data from these unsecured systems and then publishing it through what are called universities. I think some of my, my security researcher friends out there who are listening are already knowing what, what I'm talking about, but they are ostensibly universities. And then they would publish the data in renowned journals as if their university was the one that researched it and came up with it. Now, in the scope of academia, this may not sound like a big deal, right? We're just sharing information. Who cares who got there first? Well, who cares is when you have, say here in the U.S., the Department of Defense sponsoring that research because it could be some new technology that would benefit the military. And then a nation state actor publishes that data first, which means they have ownership of it, which means now the Department of Defense can't use that technology or can't patent it or can't work on it. And and for universities who do grant programs like this, it's incredibly lucrative. and We're talking tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars of future research grant money that comes in from government agencies or from corporations that want this research to continue. And so being first to publish is a really big deal and can cost the university a lot of money. And in these cases, because they weren't locking down that really critical research data, it was getting published outside, they were losing all of that grant money, and, and it, was a, it was a big deal. I mean, we had to spend a lot of time and effort sort of working through how we were going to change that while still dealing with the culture of academia. But these are the kinds of things that I think a lot of folks don't think about in terms of sort of the unconventional attacks and how you can monetize potentially any sort of data. It's not just banks. A self-help kind of mantra, too. If you're doubting that you've got
0: something valuable, you do. hundred percent. hundred percent. Yes. One of the things that Alice and John Doe tell each other throughout season two is their targets are the most vulnerable where they're the most comfortable. We see it time and time again in season two. And in fact, Alice, when she gains access to John Doe's house and figures out where she lives after socially engineering Carl, literally seizes that mantra that she and John Doe use, takes full advantage of it to identify the gaps in his personal home security so that she can break in and plant a keylogger on his computer. It's where we left off in episode five. So I'm curious, how can you identify your areas
1: of vulnerability where you might be comfortable? You know, the, the most important thing for, first to remember is that when it comes to cyber attacks, and it doesn't matter who the malicious actor is, it doesn't matter. When it comes to cyber attacks, it is almost never personal. It is one of the most common misconceptions I, I see all the time, where you have organizations even, leader, you know, leadership level kind of people who say, well, I, I use a password manager and I have strong passwords on all of my websites and all my personal finances are locked down and every website I use, I use strong security. Great. What are you doing for your own company's website or your own company's network? Well, I'm a very small company. No one's going to target me. No, no, no! It, it, it's not personal. It's not a, a matter of these attackers say, "Yeah, that 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 fish is too small." That's not the thing. If they find an opening, they'll look into it. They have tools. It's all automated, right? So they can they can go and, and and launch those kinds of attacks indiscriminately. And frankly, even if you are a small company or a small organization or it's just your home, that serves as a beachhead for me to launch attacks to other networks, to other people, to the folks you know, and I might be able to work up to a bigger fish, if you want to use that analogy. So this idea that no one knows who I am, why would they attack me? I'm too small of a company, why would anyone bother? It's just my stuff at home, who really cares? That has to end. That misconception of this idea that it's so personal, it just isn't true. So if you want to start that process of figuring out where are you very comfortable with your security and how to start to make better decisions about mitigating and protecting yourself, it starts with embracing this idea that it's not personal and that your data, your systems, may not seem like much, but there's a lot that I can do with that data, maybe not to you, but to the next person, the people you know, your family, your friends, your coworkers, so on and so forth. Don't get lax with patching password management your credentials that's another big place where people get comfortable it's easy to have a simple password because it's easy to remember or they use the same password everywhere because again it's convenient that's something that has to change for a lot of folks if i can break your password in one place i now can break it everywhere so we have to get better about password management there's lots of great tools out there that are free that can help you with do doing better password management and can automate a lot of that for you that's really critical. Outside of that, if you're a business, your government agency, your university, whatever the case is, knowledge is power, right? We can't get a good handle on what to do or identify the places we're comfortable unless we know the landscape that we're trying to deal with. And it's been number one on every best practice list for the last 20 years. Understand what you own, know your asset landscape, however you have to do that. And it's, I, I get it's complicated sometimes, but knowing where all your assets are. All your data where your servers are who's on your network what credentials exist if you don't start with that fundamental understanding of what you're trying to protect and the state of those things those assets those servers all of it you're never going to be able to identify the places where you have gotten too comfortable with your security controls you're not going to find the places where data is escaping your network and and, potentially costing your money or even causing harm, depending on the services you're providing. It's not impossible. I promise you all out there, it's not impossible. It can be done. So that's where we've got to start. Thank you again to
0: Nathan Wensler for lending his expertise. And thank you for listening. Learn more at tenable.com slash Alice. Alice and John Doe will return in a new episode on Tuesday, September 5th. And finally, if you like the show, tell a friend. And we'd also love it if you left us a rating and review. We'll see you on September 5th.